When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 486th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and for those of you tuning in, we are recording this episode in front of an audience at the Ray Kurtzman Theater at CAA, the Hollywood talent agency that has long represented my guest, following a screening of Mohammad Reza Aslani's 1976 film, Chess of the Wind, in which this actress made her big screen debut. The recent rediscovery and restoration of this long-lost film, which the Criterion Collection describes as a jewel of Iranian cinema and one of the most astonishing works of the country's pre-revolutionary new wave, has provided us all with a perfect reason to pause and celebrate a true trailblazer who has been doing great work on the stage and screens big and small for a half century, stunning people of all backgrounds with her incomparable voice, beauty, and above all, talent. To cite just a few of her accomplishments, she was nominated for an Oscar for her performance in 2003's House of Sand and Fog, making her the first Iranian or Middle Eastern actress ever to be up for that honor. She reached millions of TV viewers with her unforgettable turn on the fourth season of the hit Fox drama series 24 in 2005, and she won an Emmy for her work on the 2008 limited series, House of Saddam. For those reasons and many others, she is widely regarded as the greatest Iranian actress of all time and one of the greatest actresses of all time, period. And at the age of 70, she is going as strong as ever. I first met, interviewed, and was enchanted by her 15 years ago at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I'm so thrilled that we recently reconnected and are able to do this tonight. Would you please join me in welcoming Miss Shoray Agdashlu? Great to see you. Lovely to see you too. And Our pretty, friendship goes back how long? 15 years. 15 years, now. and to see you on the big screen at that stage of uh, of your development, your first film. We'll we'll get into all of that, but. Just to be consistent with every episode of this, I, I don't think there are too many people in the room who don't know the answer to this, but where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, born in Tehran. My father was a deputy at the health ministry. My mother was uh, a teacher, but after uh, she gave birth to my brother, she decided that she's going to stay home and take care of us. And it was you and then three boys? Uh, three Absolutely. I have three brothers. So your first exposure to acting, do you remember what it was and what particularly appealed to you about it? Absolutely. I always wanted to become an actress ever since I watched the Gone with the Wind in the Caspian Sea with my mother and my cousins. That day I was 16 years old and I told my mother right in the interval, I said, every, all the kids were asking for uh, sodas and popcorn and chocolate and this and that. And I 
just turned to my mother and I said, I am going to become an actress and I'm going to act better than a Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> so, okay. And my mother looked at me and said, no, not under our roof. That, right. And so <laughs> that uh, was addressed by getting married at 18, I believe, right? 18. At 19. Right. Then that's you right. could go off and... Do what you wanted? Yes, the suitor was was willing to let me act. I remember we went to this uh, cafe restaurant called Chattanooga on Pahlavi Street. And he looks at me and he said, would you be willing to marry me? And I said, I can't lie to you. I can't start this marriage with a lie. I want to become an actress, if you don't mind. And I never forget that. He started you know, going like, hmm, I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> so I married him as soon as I could. There you go. Now, just to come back for a, <laughs> just to come back for a second to Gone with the Wind, your daughter, what is her name? Tara Jane. Tara for Gun with the Wind. There you go. Yes. Bravo, <laughs> Tara for Gun with the Wind and Jane for Jane Austen. Awesome. Well, so as you now with your husband's blessing were able to begin this, this acting career, can you describe what was what was out there for you at that time? I know there were a lot of initially primarily theater and, and maybe you can talk about what the drama workshop was and all of that. Absolutely. And this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to start with the stage. My father took us to see many plays when we were young, when we were kids. And I wish every time we passed the city theater, I looked at the city theater thinking, one day I am going to perform on your stage, no matter what. And uh, I was married. We were about to go to our honeymoon. And a friend of his came uh, to our house and said, by the way, I heard Shura would like to act. If that's right, uh, City Theater is casting for a play called The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Edward Bond. If she would like to go for an audition, she can. They're going to have a a session for, for the whole day tomorrow. And I just looked at my husband, newly married, and he looked at me and he said, why don't you go try it out? I said, by all means, early morning I went. Uh, I had to wait for almost two hours. Finally, uh, I got in, I auditioned uh, for this role. And thank God that I didn't know who was who. Apparently there was uh, Mr. Safari, who who was the founder of the Workshop 79, related to the Iranian TV and radio. And... uh, Abbas Nalbandian, another amazing, great uh, playwright. And uh, they were all there. I didn't know anybody. So I just acted my piece out and they said, why don't you go and wait? So I did. After an hour or so, Abbas Nalbandian came to me and said, congratulations, you got the role. And I could have not believed it. I looked at him and I was almost on the verge of, of crying. And he said, uh, how soon can you come for the rehearsals? And all of a sudden I remembered, oh my God, my husband and I are about to go on our honeymoon and the whole trip was mapped out. So I said, well, well as soon as you need me. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just 
he said, how about next week? We'll let you know when exactly. And I flew home with guilty conscience, didn't know how to say this to my husband. I opened the door, he looked at me, he was already at home. He looked at me and I, I must have looked, you know, like I've seen a ghost or something, because he said, what's wrong with you? And I just looked at him and I didn't dare to say anything. And he said, you got the role? And I said, yes, I did, but they want to start very soon. And this is what he said. Well, honeymoon can wait, but Edward Bond cannot. <laughs> That's pretty good. It pretty great. So from your time in the theater, uh, was, as you're getting into this, was screen acting also always in the back of your head as a dream even? I know, you, as you said, you'd watched movies, but... Did it seem even fathomable or how did this first opportunity uh, in Chess of the Wind come about? Because that is the first time you were on a, on a screen, right? That's right. Yes, it's my first film. Problem was that with uh, acting on the screen was back then was frowned upon. Not many parents would have liked their children to be a part of Iranian cinema. And uh, unfortunately... I was, you know, I, my parents were the same. So I didn't know how to, I obviously as an actor, I would have loved to go on the screen, but I didn't know anybody. And uh, people kept saying that the atmosphere of Iranian cinema is not right for our pampered daughters and children and stuff. Finally, uh, the director of this film came to see a play of mine, which was called Goldune Khanum. And day later, he called me and he told me about the movie. And I said, why don't you come home and talk to my husband and let's see what we can do together. And he brought the script home. I talked to my husband. I read the script and I fell in love with the script. And I decided to do it. So this director is Mohammad Reza Aslani. He was just... 32 at the time you made it, I think, 33 when it came out. Um, I guess I wonder, you know, the, the original screening of this movie was at the fifth Tehran International Film Festival. This is November 76. And then it was pretty much gone. And I wonder if you can explain why that was. Forget about the, the prints disappearing for all those years. It just kind of was swept under the rug. And uh, even at that initial screening, people were not, uh, you know, going nuts for the film in the way that they do today with, if you read, you know, when it was rediscovered, it's, it's amazing to read the, the reviews. But what was the response when the movie was first put out in the world? At the festival, it had a great response. We had a standing ovation for a couple of minutes. People had related to it. People could have seen that what the director is predicting for the future of Iran. And by the way, every time I watch this film, it reminds me of the movie Parasite. <laughs> the uprising, yes, absolutely, of the proletariat. And uh, it, was, it was great at the festival. But unfortunately, right after the festival, the movie was banned because of its ending. 
And the only thing that the censorship was asking the director to do was to cut the very last scene that you, you watched when uh, my character leaves home and starts walking into the streets. If you recall, there's a crane. It takes the camera up. And what happens, we see uh, Iran uh, in uh, 20th century. Absolutely. Because up until then, uh, it's supposed to take place at Gajar's time, 19th century. And the only reason for it to be banned was the end that the camera started moving up and showing Tehran. Isn't that interesting, though? So pre-revolution, they weren't making an issue of the sort of scene where something is implied between you and your character and the woman she attends to. Yeah. They're not making an issue of sort of the um, violence or anything else, that was their only problem? The only problem. They were saying that what you're referring to is belongs to the 19th century and Gajara's dynasty, not... Not ours, yeah. Not ours, absolutely. So th as a result, not even a theatrical release goes under the, under the rug, essentially. Now, you made two other films before leaving... Um, and all three of these are are considered now staples of the pre-revolutionary new wave, right? So I just want to prompt you to share, if you can, a little bit about the other two. Abbas Karastami's Gozaresh, or The Report, 1977, middle-class Iranian woman at a time of transition. Um, obviously, he's come to be seen as one of the masters. Um your experience with that one? It was amazing. I learned a lot from Kiarostami and we remained friends until he passed away, unfortunately. Uh, Abbas was the one who introduced me to the non-acting school, which nowadays is very uh, popular. What he said at the very beginning was, sorry, I don't work with actors, which is very true. He likes to work with non-actors and made those amazing movies, films, I should say. And all he said was, I don't want you to act. I want you to be yourself. And this was the greatest lesson I've ever learned in, in my career. When acting, just try to be yourself, turn into a vessel and relate to us what you have learned, observed and absorbed. So... Chess of the Wind, 76, The Report, 77, and then Ali Hatami. Uh, I'm glad, thanks, I would have butchered Broken the pronunciation. Hearts. And this is Broken Hearts. 78. Ali is a, was, unfortunately, yeah. we lost him too, yeah. was a philosopher. He was a poet. He was not just a director. And this film, Suited Alone, The Broken Heart, is now considered a classic right. of the Iranian cinema. Cinematography was amazing. Mostly we uh, we got everything from Italy, including hair and makeup artists. And he made a, a classic. He made an amazing film about a disabled man who falls in love with a prostitute. It's an amazing film. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. So for all three of these, were you were you still in Iran for their release? 
Well, obviously, the first one did not have a theatrical release. Of the Irish as well. The report, the report was the same. The report was banned. The only one that came out was Broken Hearts, Sutadana. And how was that one received? Unbelievable. Yeah. It was, the line would have gone all around the theater for, for, for miles, if I'm not mistaken. The way I remember it is uh, that... I told my brother, I said, I want to go watch the movie with people, but I don't want them to recognize me. So uh, I wore a suit, I wore a scarf around my neck, I wore a hat with my my brothers, we went to see the movie. And I was crying the whole time, (laughs) watching myself on the screen for the first time. It's very scary when you do that. And uh, it was amazing, And, and people... We're, we're just on the edge of the seats and they kept saying, oh, she's good, she's good. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> telling my brothers, they're talking about me, they're talking about me. <laughs> so you were at that time in your mid-20s, right? Uh, 20, 26, 25, 26. Yes. You were already well-known enough that you needed a disguise. Yes. And things were going very well. And sometime within the year after that, you made the conclu- you reached the conclusion that it was time to leave. Can you share what went through, what went into that, that obviously very difficult decision, which involved leaving behind like, like many loving family, a cherished dog you've talked about and this, and this very burgeoning career. Absolutely. It was a hard one. Uh, right at the t- time of the turmoil, when the Shah left Iran, the Prime Minister at the time, Shahpur Bhaktiar, uh, called for a pro-democracy rally. I went to the demonstration with a dear friend of mine, childhood friend of mine, who unfortunately committed suicide a year after the revolution. He should have listened to me. We went to the uh, demonstration. We were all going through Shah's Avenue, getting into Baharistan Square, waiting for the Prime Minister to start his speech. Uh, On the sides, on the pavements, there were Muslim fanatics with their men bearded in their flip-flops, women in their chadors, in their hijabs, black hijab with their fists out, cursing and cussing us and calling us all the names that they could. Remember, and we just we just didn't care. We uh, there were thousands of us, thousands of Iranians, quaffed up to their teeth. So chic, beautiful. We all went to the bars, not a square. And the prime minister started with saying, "Whoever is gone now, we wish him well." And all of a sudden, somebody from my left side on the pavement, one of the fanatics. Shout, uh, started shouting, saying that he means the blah, 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 Shah. And I turned around to see who dares to say such a thing. And all of a sudden, the sky was filled with uh, bricks, pieces of bricks, broken bricks, and, and uh, stones. We were literally being stoned. They were throwing stones at us. And I turned around, and all of a sudden, I... It, Something hit my forehead forehead, and then my left eye was wet and then it came to my mouth and I tasted that bitter taste of blood and I noticed that my head is broken. So I turned around to find Maddie 
that the crowd was taking him. And all I said was, uh, I, I was, I could say it was, Mary, Mary, help. And he said, go to Zale Street, go to Zale Street, I'll meet you there. We went there, they, they had predicted that there may be some violence. That's why there were a couple of ambulances parked on Zale Avenue. And I got myself into the ambulance. The uh, nurse was very kind. She was very young, my age. And she was stitching my head. She was crying. I wasn't. I was upset, but I wasn't crying. I was numb. I was angry. And I made up my mind right, right at that time, at that moment, that there is no place for a young, outspoken actress like myself in this country no more. This is going to be the Ayatollahs, the Mullahs country. The rumor in the air was that Ayatollah Khomeini was coming from North the Chateau via Air France. And I thought, I have to leave. The hardest part was my dog, Pasha. He was a German Shepherd, and I named him Pasha, means sir. I didn't want to leave Pasha behind. Problem was that I knew I was not going to see Pasha again. My parents could have flown to Europe, could have come and seen me, but Pasha couldn't. So every single day before I left, I started talking to Pasha. We would sit in front of each other and him with his proud ears. And I would tell him that, Pasha, I need to leave. I have to go. Unfortunately, I cannot take you with me. The future is unknown. The destination is unknown. I cannot take you with me. And then his ears would start coming down and then his eyes would get wet. And I remember when, when one of the occasions, my husband came home and saw us sitting in the dark, talk, me talking to him. And he said, I would never, ever forget this scene until I die. You're talking to him. And I said, yes, I need his permission. <laughs> so I made up my mind, but unfortunately a bit too late because by the time I was ready to leave, um, the Prime Minister, Shapur Bhaktiar, had ordered all the airports to shut down for three days. Uh, he was trying to buy some time for himself to think of what to do with the Ayatollah upon his arrival. And I thought, maybe it's going to take more than three days. Maybe it's going to take three months or three years. There is no way I can live here anymore. So on February 28, 1979, 4 a.m., I sat in my car and I drove to Europe. And, and from our previous conversation years ago, you talked about that. I, I guess it, it was helpful to have your mother say something to you about that. Absolutely. Back then, we didn't dare to tell anyone what we were up to. No one would have told anyone that they were leaving. And obviously I didn't. I called my mother at 10 p.m. the night before. And I said, Ma, I've decided to leave Iran. I'm driving and I'm leaving at 4 a.m. And she said, go, sorry, go. Do not even look back. Boru, Boru. And I was 
I said, let me talk to daddy. She said, no, he may not agree with you. I will tell him in the morning when you're already gone. And it helped me a lot because my mother was with me. As of then, I started calling her Mother Courage after one of my favorite plays by Brecht. Absolutely. So that was, as you say, February 79. You show up in L.A. in 1987. Can you just connect the dots of what was going on in those intervening eight years? I had to get myself politically educated. My generation was very naive when it came to politics. In fact, we were all told when we were children, if you want to have a happy life in Iran, do not talk about politics. So if I had seen Egypt, what took place in Egypt and at Tahrir Square, if my generation had seen that, we would have never left Baharistan Square until we made the Prime Minister Shapur Bhatia to turn back Ayatollah or wherever he was coming from, turn it to France or whatever, wherever he was coming from. But I was naive, politically speaking, and I didn't want to be an actress anymore. I wanted to become a politician. This time, my, my biggest wish was to study politics. So soon as I arrived in London, my, thank God my aunt lived in London. So I, I just, stayed with her. Just to briefly say, though, it wasn't Iran to London. There were Iran to Turkey, Turkey to Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia to Italy, Italy to France, France to England. Kelly, London. Yeah. So were those all just, you know, necessary steps knowing you wanted to be in England or just figuring out as you went along? No, it was like I was running for my life. Yeah. I was trying to get myself to London and start studying as soon as I could. That's why we stayed in uh, um, in Yugoslavia, but everywhere. We just stayed for one night. I brought my friend Mehdi uh, to help uh, me driving to Europe. But unfortunately, he got sick. And my ex was with me trying to get me to Europe. He was going to go back because his mother and Pasha were in Iran and he had to go back. But... Uh, Mary got sick. Uh, my ex couldn't drive, never, never did. And therefore I had to drive uh, to Turkey's road, which were the most scariest, dangerous roads that you can imagine. And Italy was, cars were fast, like they would just, they would just pass my car and I would just shake. And Finally, yeah, we got ourselves to London. Those two, I begged of Mehdi. I said, Mehdi, why do you want to go back? You've come so far. Why don't you stay with me? And he said, what are we supposed to do, sir? I said, we wash dishes. We wait tables. It's better than living under mullahs. He said, I have a lovely job at the um, Iranian television station. He went back and a year later he got into fight with somebody, went to jail, came out and committed suicide. Well, after you get your BA uh, in political science, thinking you're going to go into politics, literally, I guess we all have these sort of, um, or not all of us have a, a, a true turning point in our lives where you can point to it and this is where something went in a different direction. But you literally, I believe, at your graduation, having just gone through all this, thinking, all right, now I can be... 
I don't know who, I think you were one of the people uh, eventually you admired, you've said was Benazir Bhutto or somebody to be a, a strong female politician. You get the degree and then at the graduation, what happens? Mr. Parviz Cardon, God rest his soul. I had him, throughout those four years when I was studying political science, international relations, I told everyone, all my friends, all the artists, writers, playwrights, I said, do not even come near me. I do not want to act anymore. I want to become a politician. And I had already found a great job at The Guardian, one of my favorite newspapers of all time. And I was ready to go work for, for Guardian. But the only people that I invited to my graduation were Harvey's Carter and his wife. The moment I got my uh, uh, BA and uh, changed the tassel for the direction, well, got down the stairs, Harvey's managed to get himself to me and said, I have written a play for you and I. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 forget it. I told you, Harvey's, I'm, I'm not acting anymore. I don't want to act anymore. I want to become a politician and help my people. Acting? How could I help them through acting? How little did I know? And he said, uh, I understand, sorry, but please do read it and just tell me how you feel about it. And if you know any actress that would be able or would be would like to play this role, just introduce the actress to me. You have some actor friends. I read the play. And I went speechless because it was a political play. It was about a choreographer, Shaw's choreographer in London, who was about to be hanged, but managed to flee Iran. And he is now in, in London, in the UK. He comes to my place. I'm a rich lady from Iran. And he wants to throw himself out of my balcony, which, is, which was, my, my apartment was on the 10th floor. And when I ask him, to why he wants to do such a thing? And he says, because media, because media is not paying attention to what is going on in Iran. They're killing us in Iran. By doing this, media will pay attention because I have a letter in my pocket. When they find my body, my corpse, they will go through my pockets. They will find this letter to the media asking them to please cover the atrocities in Iran. And I was like, wow, Jesus. I could have not said anything but yes. And what was the name of the play? Rainbow. And so this, starting in London, ends up being the thing that brings you to LA, right? And what was the response? Because obviously it was successful enough to bring you, you know, to have that kind of a uh, demand to even travel all over with it. But to show up in LA in 1987, Farsi language play in Los Angeles, how was it greeted here? Unbelievable. Our first performance was at the Horseman Auditorium that sits 600 people. And it was sold out wherever we went in Europe. We started in Europe wherever we went, two weeks ahead or three weeks ahead, the, the venue was sold out. So was Horace Mann when we got here. I was sitting, I never forget that night. I was uh, 
doing my makeup, getting ready. And Paris was taking care of uh, um, the people who've come to see us. And all of a sudden, Paris came in and said, you're not going to believe this. The venue is sold out, but there are a couple of other hundreds of people, Iranians out there who are trying to get in. And we, we keep telling them that there is no place. We don't have any seat for you. Ten minutes later, he comes back again and he says, you're not going to believe this. They, they broke the door. They broke the glass door. And I said, wow, Paris, this is where you and I should live and work and make, you know, take more place on the stage. And he goes, the door is very expensive, you know. And I said, doesn't matter. We're going to make the money. Don't you worry. And it was Honestly, it was there and then that I decided that Los Angeles is the place that I should move to and start. So, again, just I know everybody here has heard it. You've heard it. But just to kind of restate it, where you had been at the, in Iran in 1979 when you left in terms of your professional standing, keeping that in mind, now it's 1987, eight years later, you're in L.A., you finish the run of Rainbow. This is now your home. And now it's a matter of making a living acting in the American film industry. Um, can you explain, I, I know that early on, you know, there were some parts on TV and Matlock and things like that. There were uh, some, some independent movies, but was that a tough pill to swallow knowing it wasn't like you could, you know, hey, put on Netflix and you'll see what I did in Iran. It wasn't as easy. So how your past credentials wouldn't have gotten you very far with people here. How how difficult was that? It was difficult because obviously I, I didn't have any point of references and people didn't know who I was or what I did in Iran. Um, after a couple of years of doing theater, uh, a friend of mine, God rest her soul, <laughs> his soul, Batem Angasarian, he told me that I should get myself an agent. I, I, I said, how do you know how to? He said, well, let's use my agent for now. There's a piece on television. It's a TV series. I forgot what, was, what it was called. Uh, let's, let's audition. Why don't you go audition for that? I did. I got the role. It was a small role. And then Another casting director called me and said, well, would you like to come in for an audition? And I said, by all means. I went in, I took a few steps into the room and she looked at me from far away and she said, oh no, 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 go home. You're too beautiful for this role. We're looking for a downtrodden Middle Eastern woman. I was so offended thinking that he's diminishing my abilities. He can, she cannot even imagine that what, I, what kind of an actor I am and what I can do. I can play that downtrodden Middle Eastern woman she's looking for, but she dismissed me. And I remember uh, we had, my husband and I had only one car. We couldn't afford to, we were struggling. And my daughter Tara was on the back seat. She was two years old. And I told my husband, I said, you know what? The industry is not ready for us. I am not exactly the government store. What if we start our own theater company and 
keep doing Farsi speaking plays and take it on tours, which we did for 15 years before I was discovered. Europe, Australia, Canada, and the US, everywhere except for the Middle East. And there was a there was a hunger for that, right? I mean, you've sort of an untapped. There, there hadn't so been much of that everywhere. Yeah. So, so you, what you just said there when when you you know you were discovered, <laughs> you rediscovered, I guess, is really what we're talking about. Because let's let's first set this. When and how did you first hear about the existence, even of a novel called House of Sand and Fog? I was watching one of my favorite favorite people on the face of the earth. Miss Oprah, mm -hmm. she had a book club. <laughs> I'm sure you all agree with me. She had a book club, if you recall. She introduced the book and then she would talk to the writer of the book. She brought Andre Dubus III, the writer of uh, House of Sun and Rock, to uh, one of her uh, shows. And uh, at the end, she said, you have, if, if, whether you're Iranian or not, you have to read this book. Not only you have to read this book, but you need to buy two books so you can uh, give one to your best friend. And I did. I bought two and I gave one to Zaza, Zale, my dear friend. God, who is still her soul of Jesus tonight. Everyone is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, God rest my soul. <laughs> And <clears throat> so I, I knew about it. I had read it. And when I was reading it, uh, I remember we were on a tour with my husband. Uh, we were taking one of our plays to Northern California. We were driving. We got out to have a cup of coffee or something. And I was, while reading the book, walking, reading, and moaning. And my husband said, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? I said, if one day, they make a movie out of this book and do not give me this role. It would be very unfair. <laughs> then there is no democracy in this country. <laughs> and he looks, he looks at me and he says, oh, you're such a political animal. What has it got to do with politics? <laughs> they did. Well, so we're talking about the role of Nadi, the expat from around now living in Northern California with her husband, former colonel in the Shah's military, Sir Ben Kingsley, ultimately played him, and their son. This is Vadim Perlman's going to make House of Santa Fe. I think they first got it going in 2001. It finally comes out 2003, exactly 20 years ago. But in the lead up to the, to the, you know, casting of it even, I heard they were sort of at a loss for where to go for, for the part that you played. And to the extent that they were even going around the Iranian community of LA, sort of asking people, who's, which actresses do you like? And I mean, is that what you heard as well? That's exactly, that's, that's exactly what took place. Apparently they were announcing in Iranian and uh, radio and television that they were looking for, for an Iranian actress to play this role. But unfortunately, we were in Europe on another theatrical uh, tour uh, and for th three or four weeks. Uh, and I had no idea of what was going on. It was like uh, we got back from that trip. The day after, I was sitting in my office with Zole, my dear friend, and the phone rang. I picked up the phone and 
And lady said, uh, can I talk to Surya Vidasluya? <laughs> I said, excuse me? And she said, Surya Vidasluya. I said, well, it sounds like my name, but it's not my name. And she said, whatever your name is, would you like to come down and search it out? And I said, where to? She said, DreamWorks, of course. And I was thinking of what's going on here. And I said, regarding, she said, house of sand and fog. And I went speechless. My right knee started to jump and I could, I could hardly control myself. And I said, when would you like me to come in? <laughs> and she said, tomorrow, 10 a.m.? And I said, by all means, of course, <laughs> sure. And was that an audition or a meeting or what was, because I, do you know how they came to you for that? They, um, Deborah Acula, Deb Acula, the uh, casting director, which um, I was so surprised when, he, when she told me what, what happened. Uh, apparently, many Iranian ladies uh, go for an audition for this film, but Vadim Perman, the director, wasn't happy. He kept asking Deb to look more to see if there are any actresses, Iranian actresses in Europe and elsewhere. And finally, Deb decides that to send two of her employees to Westwood Avenue and Beverly Hills and ask the Iranian uh, store owners or Iranians that have shops on Westwood and uh, Beverly Hills to just tell them who their favorite mm-hmm. actress is. And the reason they had not the right spelling of my name was the fact that each and everyone had given them different spellings like S O H R S O E H R A G U D A S. That's why it turned to Surya Abidasri. <laughs> <laughs> So you go in, you know, take us through. Okay. I made a mistake. I thought, because I had read a book, I told Zaza, first up, when I hung up, turned around, Zaza looked at me and she said, have you seen a ghost or something? <laughs> I said, house of sand and fog. And we both went speechless. So I told her, it's 4 p.m., let's jump in your car, let's go to Nordstrom. I want to buy a very expensive dress because Nadi is always quaffed up to her teeth. And, you know, beautifully, and her hair is always beautiful and immaculate, you know, and her face and everything else. And I want to go in as Nadi. So we went to Nordstrom, spent $400 on a skirt and $300 on top. And I'm thinking, Jesus, these are really expensive. But Nadi would have worn them. So early morning, I woke up and I coughed up myself to my teeth and went to the audition. As soon as I opened the door, the director looked at me and he said, Oh my God, no, you have makeup on and you're dressed up. And I said, what are we supposed to do? He said, no, 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 I don't want any makeup. I don't want, no, 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 you too, you look too good. No, no, no. Do you think you can come back tomorrow? And I said, sure, by all means. And when I turned around, I heard him saying, and let's see if you can make us cry. And I thought, huh, okay, be my guest. (laughs) 
day after, I wore a pair of uh, worn jeans, a black shirt, uh, took my hair back in a ponytail. I didn't want to use my hair as a dramatic tool. I went in, I went through four scenes, and at the end is the scene where she finds out that her son is dead, and I started crying. And it was, I was done, it was finished, but I couldn't hear anything. I could hear a fly passing by, and, and I didn't dare to look at anyone. I was still looking at the ground, and all of a sudden I heard very impaired man, the director, applauding. He came to me, he kissed my forehead, and he said, Welcome aboard, sir. And that, so you, at that point, had not even, there wasn't like anything with Ben Kingsley prior to, prior to that? No. So now you, now you know you got the part. You've got a big movie with this Oscar winning actor. Intimidating, exciting. This was your big moment in the U.S. that you'd been waiting it's for, interesting. right? Larry King asked me the same question. He said, were you intimidated? And I said, before I'd say anything, Seven was like, oh, my dear. And I said, no, I wasn't. Because I had wished to work with this brilliant, amazing actor 20 years ahead of House of Sand and Fog. I was in London. I went to see a play with him in it. And I started crying. It was a comedy. And my friend said, why are you crying? It's a comedy. I said, if I ever get to work with this actor, then I call myself an actress. Secret, secret. If you want something, put it out. Put it out into the universe and it will happen. Apparently. 10 years later, I'm standing next to him, not intimidated, but anxious to start working with him. And one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever worked with. Thing is that I put too many H's in my name. S-H-O-H-R-E-H. <laughs> I should have not done that. But this gentleman, this amazing man, every morning he comes to me and he says, good morning, Shahira. <laughs> and finally I said, Seven, I made a mistake. I should have not put too many H's in my name. My name is Shore. Just say Shore. <laughs> you don't have to pronounce all the H's. <laughs> well, whatever it was that was going on with you guys, it, it worked beautifully. That was such a powerful movie. And not only, so again, it's, it's to me, it's like the ultimate it's, it's a story that's sort of like what everybody's responding to right now with Kihei Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once where Guy had been on top of the world as a kid, disappeared, not through any fault of his own, and then kind of came back and it's such a, and had an opportunity and seized upon it. Obviously your stories are very different in other ways, but that idea that you can, uh, you get another shot and you really nail it. That's something special that I think touches a lot of people, which is I'm sure part of why there was such a response here where you're nominated for everything, winning critics awards, all of this. And then the Oscar nomination, which as I mentioned earlier, first person from Iran, first person from the Middle East to, to get that. And not only, I mean, I'd love to know what 
what that meant to you, but also what the reaction in Iran, where your name had been verboten, right? There was not, you know, what my name was banned. Yeah. But right at the time of the Oscars, soon as I, w- I became nominated, my mother called me and said, up until yesterday, they had forgotten all about you. Now it is our Shirley Aldous Lewis being nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> she was so happy yeah, about yeah. this. But it always, Scott, it always takes one person to open the door, to kick the door in. But after the House of Sand and Fog, I started watching other Iranians, actors, joining the uh, industry, film, television, theater, and now we have we have a lot of them in the industry, and I strongly urge all of them to join the academy and uh, to help the academy to better get to know the Middle Easterners, foreigners are already here. They're they're working in the industry, and all we need is for more Middle Easterners to join us. Now, just obviously we're we're not able to get into everything that you've done because you've done so many interesting things, but I want to talk about these years since House of Santa Fog. You're the trailblazer. I mean, like you're saying, there are other people who have now followed, but you have, you faced some, some interesting decisions that you had to make. For, for instance, right after House of Santa Fog, after for many years saying, I will never play a terrorist because that is a, stereotypical role that I don't want to, there was something that came along with 24 season four of 24, a great part, Dina Arras, matriarch of a sleeper cell, 12 episodes of that season. You became a fan favorite the person that everybody loved to hate, but you, there was a calculation there that, and I, 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 I'd like to ask you to, to share because that's the moment right after the Oscar nomination when it's very important, you know, right? You, you have to be very deliberative about what you do in that moment. And that decision, I've, I've heard you talk about it. It's pretty interesting what went into it. I do remember that uh, after I went to a party and this amazing uh, famous actress came to me and said, you're doing television now? And I said, yes. She said, well, in my time, great actresses in Hollywood, they wouldn't do TV. And I said, to be honest with you, I'm an actor. I work for the sake of acting. I don't work for the media, television, cinema, theater. It won't make a difference to me as long as it gives me a chance to be a part of a meaningful storytelling. I'm a storyteller. I've always been. And uh, the reason I accepted that role because it was such a sophisticated, multi-layered character that I could have not, meaty, meaty, I could put my teeth into this character. And obviously, again, I decided that I'm going to take this character, to portray this character, because I know that I can bring all the dimensions out. And I started portraying this character. And when it hit the television, unfortunately, there was a huge backlash on me in the Iranian community. 
Every morning when I used to take my daughter to school, I could hear it on the Iranian radio in my car saying that she's given us a bad name. The Iranians are no terrorists. And I never forget this. One day my daughter said, of course Iranians cannot be terrorists because no Iranian can take a cave without a chandelier. <laughs> and she was so right. She was, she was so right. She's so right. So one day I got, I, got, I really got tired of all this. So I called the station and I said, I would like to go on air live. I would like to talk to these people and tell them, look, I left my parents behind. I left a lavish life behind. I left everything behind. I stripped myself of whatever I had back in Iran and started from zero again. What, what do you expect me to do? Not to play a role that is multidimensional and I can do a great job by portraying this role. What, what would you like me to do? And people kept calling, started, started calling the station and telling me that Mrs. Aldastu, don't worry, we understand your situation. You're an actor, you like this role and you wanted to uh, breathe life into this role and we understand, we understand it. And it was way more nuanced than I think anyone else could have made. You, that was to the extent that when this character met her end, people were so kind of attached and intrigued by her that I, I was going through the archives today. There was a thing, I think it was the New York Post. Like they had to confirm people. She was, spoiler alert, uh, 17, 18 years later, she was shot off camera. But people needed to know if she was actually... 24 fans were very upset with that the they fact didn't that see, I was right. shot off the camera. I saw a gentleman in the corridor when I was at the Universal we were passing each other. As soon as he recognized me, he stood and he said, I would never forgive them for not giving you a proper death. <laughs> well, now, just one last follow-up about that subject. You wrote a wonderful memoir, which people can go and get. But one of the things you shared in that was that maybe the reason that the death was not as elaborate as they would have liked was because it wasn't intended to happen at that time, right? I mean, this was That's, quite, yes. uh, it was not the creator's intent. It wasn't, no, I asked for it. I had to ask for it. Other things you've done since then, just to touch upon a few. House of Saddam 2008, this is limited series, co-produced by the BBC and HBO, playing Saddam Hussein's first wife, winning an Emmy, but playing a, I think you said the first time you played someone who was still alive, not that you really owe Saddam Hussein's family, uh, you know, any, I don't know. What, what just, what was, for, for that one, anything you want to share? It is hard to play someone who's still alive because you want to do your best. And uh, I went uh, through a lot of, uh, um, watching a lot of tapes that uh, I was provided with by BBC. And then later on when HBO came on board, they too sent me, uh, clips of them, uh, Saddam and his wife, uh, visiting hospitals, their private parties. And I studied her inside out and I tried to stay as faithful as possible.
to who she was, at least from what I have seen on on, on the silver screen. And uh, after I portrayed her, a couple of years later, I was at a party with a musician from Iraq, and he came to me and he said, Miss Sajida, Saddam Hussein's wife, likes your performance very much in House of Saddam. And I said, do you know her? He said, yes, uh, every time she has a party, she lives elsewhere now. Yeah. And she, he said, every time she has a party, she invites me and I play for her. And I was there after she had watched the uh, series House of Saddam and she loved your performance. And I said, why? Why did she like my performance? And he said, I didn't ask her. I said, this is my phone number. If by any chance you see Mrs. Sajida, please ask her as to why she liked my performance. Year later, he calls and tells me that she liked your performance because you played her with class. That same year, just uh, you want to talk about range, you go from her to the stoning of Soraya M, which was moving at Toronto Film Festival. You're playing in, set in 1986, Iran, a true story, woman stoned to death by her fellow villagers. Brutal film to, to watch. That's a painful film. And I know it was for you to make it as well. Just what made you want to tell that story and, and what was it like to do that? I was waiting to make this movie for almost 15 years after I watched a real life stoning on tape that was smuggled out of Iran by a group called Mujahidi. Uh, there were two guys in it. They were captured for having an inappropriate relationships. They were first lashed 80 times, then they were planted into the earth and up to their shoulders and then there were like a couple of hundreds of young men in their uh, American uh, sports shoes and sports jackets and waiting to throw the stones. And I remember the there was a mullah there with his megaphone saying that, don't hurry, I will tell you when to start stoning. And then, of course, they started. I couldn't eat properly, I couldn't sleep properly for days until uh, I thought that I have to make a movie about this, I have to do something about it. But wherever I went, whoever I talked to, they said, we cannot do this, this is beyond our, our abilities. And to the point that when the director of this movie, writer-director, uh, Sirius Noyaste, when he called me and he said that, he wants to make a movie about stoning in Iran. And the first, my first reaction was, where were you up until now? And the poor man said, excuse me, I don't understand what you're referring to. And I said, I've been waiting to make a movie about stoning in Iran for almost 15 years. As a matter of fact, I had talked about it thoroughly in the Iranian television drama jam on, on Sundays, but never got a chance to turn it into a movie. So when he said that, I said, well, never mind that you'd like to make the movie. Do you have executive producers? Do you have people who are willing to put money on this movie? 
because we, we all know that there, there was not going to be a return, obviously. And he said, John Shepard and Steve uh, McAvity, the executive producers of The Passion of Christ. And I said, do you understand the misery of human beings, the misery of life? I'm sure they would help us make it. And they did. Wow. And they spent a lot of money on it, which obviously was never returned. Last couple things. Um, another, this has been reported before in the media, but I think it's more striking now, even just, I'd like to think that in the last few years, we've, we've made some progress in this industry, maybe, but uh, 2011, there was a movie called The Adjustment Bureau. What was your... You. <laughs> you want to get me into trouble? Well, I mean, it's, it's out there already. What was your What was your association with that movie? And then what happened? I was approached by the director. He called me and he told me that he has a role for me in this film. We had a meeting. After the meeting, he said, now having met you, I've changed my mind. I want you to play another role for me, which is far more important than the one that I had in mind. I had you in mind for a chairman, but I want you to portray the role of God. And I thought, it's 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 not gonna happen. It's it, I couldn't believe it. Finally, it happened. Uh, we shot the movie in uh, in New York, and uh, the designer had designed a beautiful green raincoat for me. It was at the time of the green movement in Iran, and I thought, what an amazing omen that I am wearing, as God, I'm wearing a green uh, raincoat. Uh, we finished filming it. I came back to Los Angeles. Uh, so proud, so happy, couldn't wait for this film to be shown and to talk about the green movement and how happy I was when I was offered a green raincoat. And uh, my, my people called me and told me that uh, he would like, the director would like to talk to me. He's in Los Angeles. And I said, why do I have a bad feeling about this? And I was told that, nah, don't, don't. He's just here and he would like to see you and have a cup of coffee with you. So I went to meet him at London Hotel. I got in, he was there, I sat next to him. And he said, I, I have good news and I have bad news. And I said, bad news first, please. And he said, unfortunately, uh, the executive producers or the studio they have decided that uh, a Middle Eastern Muslim woman cannot play the role of God in this film. So they are going to cast an actor to portray your role. I said, 
Wait a second. I called the waiter and I said, the biggest piece of chocolate that you can <laughs> that you have at your disposal, please, <laughs> with a cup of coffee. Cappuccino, actually. Make it even sweeter. And uh, in a minute it was there. I was just devouring it and George was looking at me and I was looking at George and I said, I'm ready to leave. And we left. By the door, George was kind enough to ask me to pay for my uh, parking ticket. I said, no, as a matter of fact, I have to pay for your parking ticket. And we started joking and laughing and stuff. I got into my car, I started driving, but then it hit me and I started crying like here. The car was shaking, so I went into the street and I, I parked there. I cried my heart out. Then I told myself, doesn't matter, sorry. Next one. And I drove home and I forgot all about it until today. I'm sorry. <laughs> what was the good news? Did you ever find out what the good news was? Salva Hayek asked me the same question. <laughs> no answer? I didn't. What? I couldn't care what the good at news was anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't know what, 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 what it could have been. Well, for anyone who doubts that you can play anything, <laughs> I just will note as we near the end here that you played a professor in X-Men The Last Stand, an emergency room physician in the, la in the lake house, a doctor on Grey's Anatomy, the UN Secretary General on the sci-fi drama series The Expanse, the Commodore in Star Trek Beyond, and we could go on and on and on. So... Uh, I think that that's a, a terrible thing that you had to <laughs> go through, but I, I think we all know better than, uh, better than they do about what you can do. Um, final thing is just you earlier this month went to the Oscars again and made a real statement with your outfit. Unlike when people say someone made a statement with their outfit, I guess that they think it's a, a fashion statement normally. And this was certainly cool, beautiful fashion, but you, you, Consistent with what you were talking about earlier, your interest in politics, your heart being in Iran. Uh, so can you talk about what you wore there and why you wore it? And I guess just generally how you feel about this current moment in Iran, because um, I, I know it's been on your mind. Well, I left Iran 43 years ago, but Iran never left me. It's always been a part of my life. Uh, when uh, I was invited to the Oscars, I thought the first thing that crossed my mind was that I have to wear a dress that bears the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom. I have to bring it to the ultimate platform of arts and sciences and have billions of people watch this. I'm sure I know millions, billions of people know what is going on in Iran, atrocities. But uh, I thought it's, it's my duty to use this moment and bring the slogans that my girls, my sisters, my daughters back in Iran are chanting on the surface of the streets, asking for a regime change. I have to take this slogan to the red carpet. So I was looking for the right designer and all of a sudden I remembered that 
Kristen uh, Siriano created a suit for Julia Roberts. I believe it was in 2004. And that over the suit, all over the suit said, vote, 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 vote. Uh, Julia was trying to encourage early voters to start voting. I called Siriano with the help of my publicist, of course. And he said, where are you now? I said, I'm in New York. I'm, I'm working on a TV series in New York currently. It is called The Penguin. It's the spin of Batman. And he said, I said, I'm in New York. I'm working in New York. And he said, whereabouts are you? I said, Midtown. And he said, can you come to Soho now, right now? And I went to Soho. I went to his amazing studio. And we talked for almost two hours. He asked me as to how I wanted to do this. And I said, you're the designer. I'm here at your disposal. Please tell me what we can do, how we can do this. It was all Siriano's idea to kind of hit it in, the in my skirt. So when I opened the skirt, people would see the message. Two days later, he called me and he said, how about adding the first three girls who were killed on the surface of the streets in Iran, asking for their basic rights for freedom. And I thought, that's perfect. That's perfect, Christian. I told him, that's a great idea. So it was not only kept the balance really well with the slogan and the names, and I love the idea that I could show it to the people and I could hide it when I was going in to the theater with all my colleagues over there. I was just an actress, not a politician. So I showed it off on the red carpet and just tucked it in when I went in with my colleagues to watch the Oscars. Thank you so much for doing this for the great movies and uh, TV and everything and uh, look forward to what's next. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.